Turn with me to the 13th chapter of Revelation. And we want to take a look at another of these agencies through which the great enemy of God's plan to save the human race imposes his will upon the world. Last week we uh, were introduced to the dragon who skulks his way behind the scenes of human history, working in unseen ways, imposing his will on the human race, though uh, they're not aware at all of his activity. He's the one who's responsible for all the violence and crime and bloodshed and evil that men do. And uh, he's revealed for us in chapter 12. And then chapter 13, we see him again, but the emphasis in chapter 13 is on uh, a couple of his henchmen that are raised up to, uh, to accomplish his will. Let's begin by reading the first ten verses of chapter 13. And he stood on the sand of the seashore. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole world was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for forty-two months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here demonstrated is the perseverance or the steadiness and the faith of the saints. Now, what are we to make of these verses? I'm sure you've seen political cartoons from time to time, uh, the sort of things that Oliphant, Wright, and others do in the, on the editorial page of The Statesman. And uh, if you were to uh, see a cartoon depicting an elephant uh, striving against a donkey, you would understand that uh, he doesn't mean us to believe that all... Uh, Republicans are elephants and all Democrats are donkeys. Uh, these uh, pictures are symbols of some other reality. And that's the sort of thing that we have in the book of Revelation. These are symbols that depict uh, something very real, a real entity. And our problem is to discover what that point of identification is. What is John talking about when he describes this uh, great beast? Now, it would not be a mystery to those who... Uh, who read this, who first read this book, because they had something of an understanding of the Old Testament, and they would readily identify the beast with uh, Rome. 
and the Roman Empire. Also in the book of Revelation itself, if you want to turn over a few pages to chapter 17, the um, beast is clearly identified with the Roman Empire. In verse uh, 8, the beast is described again, and then in 9 we're told, here is the mind that has wisdom. In other words, this is a, this is a clue. And if you're wise, you'll understand. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. In ancient uh, literature, Rome was always described as a city set on seven hills. It's still referred to uh, in that way today. So clearly the seven heads have something to do with the city of Rome. And in verse 10, we're told they are also seven kings. Five have, five have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. Now, what is that? It sounds like double talk. Well, the symbol of seven heads apparently has a twofold application. It's symbolic of two different things. It stands for the city of Rome and for the Roman Empire. The seven heads also are identified with seven kings, five of whom had already perished. These were the five emperors of the Roman Empire who had already fallen. They had uh, died by John's time. Augustus was the first, Tiberius, Caligula, uh, Claudius, Nero, and uh, Vespasian, who was the king at the time John is writing. He's referred to as the one who is. And then after Vespasian, Titus became the king, and he only lasted for a couple of years. He's the one who appears for a short time, according to John's description. And uh, then another one, Domitian, occurs uh, after Titus' death. So without question, the beast has something to do with the Roman Empire. We're told that in chapter 17. And we're also told, uh, given further information in the book of Daniel, as uh, we'll see in a moment. Now let's try to understand what John sees. In chapter 12, he saw the dragon in the sky. And uh, the description of the dragon there is, has to do with his operation behind the scenes, his, his work in the unseen world of the spirit. In chapter 13, he's on the seashore. So the dragon now is working out his will on the earth, and he does through, uh, he does through this uh, beast, this henchman of his that arises out of the sea. And John describes him as he sees him come out of the sea. Now recall, in the book of Revelation, the sea is always a symbol of the Gentile nations, a great seething mass of humanity out of which these various nations emerge. And he's described here with ten horns and seven heads. We've already seen the seven heads uh, are identified with the rulers of the Roman Empire. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. The uh, rulers, the emperors of the Roman Empire, repeatedly attributed uh, divine names to themselves. Augustus called himself Divus. It means one like the gods. Nero uh, called himself Savior of the world uh, in all uh, humility. And uh, Domitian uh, wanted to be referred to as our Lord and our God. So the blasphemous names on the heads uh, of the beast are a symbolic reference to the tendency of all of these emperors to uh, deify themselves. And uh, the Senate went right along with it. Often when these kings died, they were posthumously appointed to the, uh, one of the to the Roman pantheon. And then uh, as the beast comes up out of the sea, uh, John sees its torso. It's like a leopard, lean and, 
and swift. Its feet are like those of a bear. It has great fixed, terrible claws on the end of its paws. And uh, its mouth is like the mouth of a lion with great uh, power, great teeth. And the dragon gives him his power and his throne and great authority. In other words, his, uh, his power is derived. The uh, beast is not the enemy. The beast is being used by the enemy. He's being victimized. The real enemy is the dragon. The beast simply derives his authority from the dragon. And then we're told in verse 3 that one of his heads, that is one of these emperors, uh, appears to have been slain. And we're told in verse 14 that's uh, as the result of a sword slash. And uh, the fatal wound is healed. And you'll notice it's the beast whose, fa whose fatal wound was healed. He's not referring to a resurrection of one of these emperors, but rather the beast itself that appears to die and then comes to life. Now, that's an important observation. We'll come back to that in a moment. And we read in verse 3 that the whole world was amazed and followed after the beast, and they worshiped the dragon from whom the beast gains its, uh, its authority and they worshiped the beast. And then in verse 5, there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words, that is, blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months. Now here's this time span that we've seen over and over again, specified in different ways, 1,260 days, or, or the middle of the week, or 42 months, a period of three and a half years that immediately precedes the coming of our Lord Jesus. This is the last phase of human history before the Lord comes. Now, if you think for a moment, something very odd is happening here. Now, John starts out by describing the Roman Empire of his day. And then he leaps forward at least 2,000 years and perhaps uh, over a greater span of time to the last three and a half years of human history. What's going on? Well, I think we'll see in a moment. Then in verse 16, we're told that he opened his mouth in, blaspheme, uh, in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is, he speaks against God and those whom God indwells. The tabernacle is described not as a building in verse 6, but in the clause that follows those who dwell in heaven. So uh, John sees people, not, uh, not a building. The beast speaks against God and the people whom God indwells. And in verse 7, he makes war with the saints and he overcomes them. That is, he puts them to death. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation is given to him. He extends his authority over the entire world and all who dwell on the earth will worship him. As we've seen, there are two moral classes in the book of Revelation and we see both of them together here. There are those who dwell in heaven in uh, New Testament terminology, those who are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, those who belong to God, whose perspective is spiritual rather than material, who live to be godlike and to perform God's will in the world and not merely to live for things and what we can amass here on this earth. They're people who have a, uh, a spiritual, uh, heavenly perspective in contrast to those who dwell on the earth. That's the horizon of their thinking. They're earthbound. They live for things. And those who dwell on the earth will worship him 
everyone whose name has not been written in the book of life. Well, what do we have here? There appears to be a, a beast symbolizing the Roman Empire of John's day, and then he takes a great leap forward in time to the period of 42 months preceding the coming of Christ. What can we make of this? Well, to understand the passage thoroughly, we need to go back to the book of Daniel. And uh, I hate to do this to you, but would you turn back to the prophet Daniel? It's uh, page number 1247 in my Bible. Sandwiched in between Ezekiel and Hosea, if you find either of those books. If you find Hosea, turn left, and it's, uh, it immediately precedes that little prophet. <clears throat> Chapter 7. Daniel lived in the middle of the 6th century before Christ, about 550 years before Christ when he wrote these, uh, these words. He was taken captive, as you know, by Nebuchadnezzar. He was a highly intelligent, gifted young man who was taken off to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court. His concern was with the covenants that God had made with his people. God had promised that they would always have a land and, and they would be able to worship in the land. They would be a people in one location, and they now had been exiled into Babylon, and uh, Daniel was preoccupied with that, uh, with what appeared to him to be a problem with God's faithfulness. He hadn't followed through, wasn't keeping his word. And Daniel was given a series of visions that demonstrated that God did indeed keep his word. He was uh, working out things according to his timetable and not Daniel's. And in chapter 7, uh, Daniel went to sleep one night and he saw a vision. Literally, it says he saw a dream. There was uh, a scene that was presented to him in his dream. And as it unfolds, he uh, describes it for us in chapter 7. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. That's verse 2. I think we had one of those great winds yesterday afternoon. Winds uh, in apocalyptic literature speak of divine agencies, supernatural spiritual agencies at work behind the scenes, and the sea again here would be the Gentile nations. So it's God uh, creating turmoil within the nations. And out of the sea emerges uh, a series of beasts, four great beasts coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and it had wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was given to it. Now, that's not the ten woodsmen of Oz. Um, we read in the next uh, paragraph, in verse 17, These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings, or four kingdoms that will arise from the earth. We know that this first beast is, uh, is a kingdom, and it's natural to identify that kingdom with the empire in existence in Daniel's day, and that would be Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar at its head. Nebuchadnezzar now is dead. Belshazzar is on the throne. He was the last of the kings of Babylon. Nabonidus, his father, had gone off into exile and left the throne to Belshazzar, and he now is the uh, head of state of Babylon, and it's about 550 B.C., Daniel sees Babylon portrayed as a great winged lion. 
which interestingly enough was their symbol. If you ever uh, go to the museum at the University of Chicago, there's a reproduction of the Ishtar Gate, the main gate of the city of Babylon there. And uh, in beautiful yellow tile against a blue background, there are a series of winged lions depicted exactly as uh, Daniel sees them here. And uh, the symbol in that day represented Babylon as it does in Daniel's prophecy. The wings are plucked off of this beast. It's caused to stand on its feet like a man, and it's given a human heart. That's literally the, the word that's used. Probably a reference to Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. Nebuchadnezzar became a believer after a period of insanity. The kingdom of Babylon fell about 11 years after Daniel wrote this prophecy in 539, and it was succeeded by the Medo-Persian Empire, symbolized here as a bear. A bear is not Russia, at least not in this prophecy. It's uh, the Persian Empire. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, probably depicting the ascendancy of Persia. Media was the first power, and then Persia took power away from the Medes. And uh, the bear lumbers up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth, probably symbolic of the three empires that the Persians put down in order to become a world empire, the Egyptians, the uh, Lydians, and the Babylonians. Then in verse 6, he sees another beast, a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And this beast represents Alexander and the Greek armies, uh, which in a, a course of a few years conquered the entire world. In 330 B.C., they uh, conquered the Persian Empire, and uh, Alexander went off to Susa to drink himself to death because he had no more worlds to conquer, as you know the story. He died an alcoholic. And his kingdom was divided among his four generals, uh, Seleucus and Ptolemy and Cassander and Lysimachus. These are the four heads that are described here uh, that the leopard uh, possesses. And then, about the middle of the second century, the Roman armies begin to trample their way across the, uh, the Grecian world, and they are described, uh, that empire is described here as the fourth beast, a nondescript uh, beast. He doesn't look like a lion or a bear or a leopard. He, we're simply told in verse 7 that he was dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. And I kept looking until thrones were set up. And in other words, he's still looking at this little horn. There's a time lapse. And as he observes the activity of this beast, thrones were set up. The Ancient of Days took his seat, and uh, we're told that judgment is enacted on the beast, and human history comes to an end. Now, you see, you have here in Daniel exactly what you have in the book of Revelation. In Revelation, the beast that comes up out of the sea is a composite beast. He looks like all of these uh, beasts. He's part bear, part leopard, and part lion, and he has the teeth as they're described here as great iron teeth. And the final form of this uh, kingdom is a ten-kingdom form. And Daniel, just as John, leaps right down to the end of time. He traces the course of the Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and Roman empires right down until the time when the Lord Jesus comes back. 
One of the reasons the uh, critics have had such a problem with the book of Daniel is because it contains this sort of prediction. And uh, that's just not in their thinking. They will tell us that this book belongs in the second century and that he, because he was a good historian and a, a wise person, he foresaw the coming of the Roman Empire. But they will not admit that this is prediction. They'll say that the book is late because of style or language, but uh, the style of the book, the language of the book is 6th century. Everyone admits that. The problem is that it contains prediction. At least two kingdoms after Daniel's time and right on down to the very end. And what John predicts is that in the end, shortly before God comes back to set the world right, there will be a ten-kingdom form of this beast, which we've already identified with the Roman Empire. And out of these ten kings, one king will emerge who will put down three kings and assert his sovereignty over the whole world. He's further described a bit later in chapter 7. In verse... Uh, Verses 19 and following, Daniel wanted to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast and the meaning of the ten horns. And in verse 21, he says, I kept looking, and that horn, that little horn, little power, that king, was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Exactly what John says in, in Revelation. They were overcome until the Ancient of Days came. So this uh, hostility toward the saints continues right on down until the time when the Ancient of Days, that's God Himself, comes and judgment is passed in favor of the saints and uh, the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. And this little horn is apparently the same individual that Jesus refers to when He says, I, I came in My own name and you didn't receive Me. Another will come in His name, Him, you will receive. And uh, again, he's referred to by Paul in 2 Thessalonians as the man of lawlessness. The people in, in Thessalonica were afraid they were in the day of the Lord. In the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is the time when God comes to judge the earth, and it always begins with an outbreak of war and bloodshed and violence, which is brought to an end by God Himself intervening. He just lets man have his day. But then the Lord has His day. And these uh, Christians in Upper Greece, Northern Greece, were being persecuted to the death. And they thought the day of the Lord had come. And Paul says, no, no. Now, before that can happen, the great apostasy must uh, occur, which Jesus describes in Matthew 24, this time when the whole world will turn against the truth. And the man of sin is revealed, the man of lawlessness who exalts himself above every god and uh, takes his seat uh, in the temple on the throne of God, who deifies himself, who is the embodiment of all of the, uh, the secular humanism that pervades the uh, Western world today. The Renaissance man without peer, the man who has it all. And he comes aping the Lord Jesus with his social concern and his kindness and his intent to be the Savior of the world. He places his mark on the entire world and uh, gathers the nations around him.
Now, the problem, again, you know, if we stop and think for a moment, is what in the world is Daniel talking about? Because if this man comes out of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire has ceased to exist. Here's a mistake in the Bible. Both Daniel and, uh, and John see the Roman Empire continuing, beginning about the second century before Christ and continuing right on through to the end. And everyone knows if they read Gibbon or other histories of the Roman Empire that Rome fell in the sixth century through the combined pressure of the Germanic tribes from the north and the Moors and Berbers and others from the south, and Rome fell. But it didn't. It exists today. It never fell. The description of the beast that dies and then appears to come alive is an apt description of the Roman Empire. It's not talking about emperors who might be uh, revived. There was a rumor going around at one time that John F. Kennedy was the man of sin and he hadn't really been killed in Dallas, Texas, that he would be revived in the last times as the Antichrist. I don't know where that idea came from, but it didn't come from a careful examination of the text because it's not the king who is healed, it's the beast that is healed from what appears to be a mortal wound. And uh, historians who think that Rome is dead will be amazed, John says, when it appears again because it never really died. It's still with us. When the tribes from the north overran Rome, they just took Roman culture back with them to Germany. And the Franks took it off to France. And the Saxons to Britain. And uh, Roman government became Western civilization. And in the 15th century, the Western European countries, as they colonized and expanded, brought Western civilization to the New World. And we today, in the United States, are a part of the beast. We're Western civilization. We're just as Roman as anyone could be. Our legal system, our educational system, uh, they're all based on Roman ideas, Roman law, Roman philosophy. And all of these nations float into Rome, and Rome continues to exist to this day. Rome just borrowed the cultures of the people around her and passed them on to all subsequent nations. And what John is describing here is the Western world, Western civilization, Western Europe, United States, Canada. We're the beast. And what John says, if we read this passage carefully and understand it, is that the time is coming when the Western world will turn against the church. In John's day, the Roman Empire was making a concerted effort to stamp out the church of Jesus Christ. And the reason, as we've seen, is because of the dragon. The dragon was behind it all, Satan, trying to bring to an end God's program to save the human race. And as we saw last week, he almost succeeded, but was frustrated in the end. And so he goes off then to oppress the offspring of the woman. When he can't uh, get at the woman, Israel, he goes after her offspring, the people of God, the church, and he oppresses them, assaults them, assails them, tries in every way to kill them. And now we see the dragon working through human agency, through a, a state, through Rome, to bring to an end the people of God. That's what happened in, in John's day. And uh, John says it will happen again. 
uh, the time is coming, and, and no one knows when it is, when the whole Western world will turn on the people of God. The irony is that the West is what it is today because of, of the church and her impact upon Western thinking. But uh, they will turn on the hand that uh, fed them and devour it, and there will be a concerted effort to try to stamp out the people of God. Now, what then should we do? Now, remember, John is writing to people who were in the middle of it. They were going through it. They were losing their lives. And this is written to encourage them. And uh, the application is written for us in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 13. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. We would say today, now hear this. Listen up. If anyone is destined for captivity to captivity, he goes. He's talking about inevitabilities. So let's just face facts. Behind all of this is the sovereign hand of God working through history. And uh, you will face martyrdom, John says, to the people of his day. It's determined. It's the way you'll go. Secondly, if anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. And you'll recall that's a, that's a quotation from the Lord's lips. When the Roman Empire came to seize Jesus and his apostles in the Garden of Gethsemane, and uh, Peter whipped out his sword and took a wild swing at the head of the servant of the high priest, Jesus says, no, no, put it back. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. In other words, what John is saying to the people of his day is that when you are oppressed, when you face death for the cause of Christ, your attitude should be one of acceptance and nonviolence. And history records that these people marched off into freezing rivers and gave up their lives with their arms around each other, and they did not resist. And they went in and into the arenas singing hymns. They went to their death without resisting. And uh, when they were tied to the stake to be burned, they prayed for those that were putting them to death, just as our Lord prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Their attitude throughout was one of acceptance and nonviolence. They did not fight back. They didn't take up the sword to defend themselves. And John is saying that the church of Jesus Christ is going to face again that option where we will have to decide whether we're going to love our lives to the death or not. What then should be our attitude toward the West and those who take our lives from us and oppress us? Acceptance and nonviolence. Now, let's balance things out. He's not talking about uh, defending ourselves from attacks upon our person, personal attacks. We have sanction, I believe, in Scripture that permits us to protect ourselves if you're assaulted, just as we have the right of national defense. If we're invaded from outside, we have the right to defend ourselves. God has raised up government for that purpose. And for myself, I believe it is right and proper that Christians serve in that capacity. There are Christians who do not feel that way, and I can understand why they don't. But my own opinion is that we can serve with 
a good Christian conscience in the military when it is a matter of national defense. Then we can protect ourselves. Augustine long ago pointed out that when Jesus said, if someone strikes you on the, on the right cheek, turn the other cheek, that uh, the Lord must have been using an idiom there that was widely understood because assuming the fact that most people are right-handed in the world, if someone assaults you, they throw a punch at you, they're going to hit you on the left side of your face. So he's not talking about an assault, but rather an insult, a backhanded slap. Now what the Lord is talking about and what John has in mind here is not personal and national defense, but how we react when we are oppressed for the name of Christ. When people uh, vilify us and when they show hostility and hatred toward us and call us names and ostracize us and uh, eventually put us to death for the cause of Christ, what should we do? Well, we should respond in exactly the way the Lord taught His disciples to respond and the way in which He exhibited in uh, His response to the Roman authorities of His day. He didn't fight for Himself. Uh, Peter's uh, description of our Lord is that when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. And then Peter applies it. And he says, to sum it up, be humble, kind, sympathetic, brotherly, toward whom? Toward those who oppress you. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Now let's keep things straight. He's talking solely about oppression for the name of Christ, not oppression because we deserve it because we've been wicked. He's not talking about national or personal defense. He's talking about those times when you and I suffer abuse simply because we're Christians. And whether it's a, it's a national policy of uh, persecution or whether it's the kind of individual persecution that you and I experience simply because we're Christians, the, the response that we must make as Christians is always the same. Acceptance and nonviolence. I had a friend who was uh, at the Jerry Falwell rally a few weeks back, and uh, he was observing some of the reactions and the, uh, the obscene gestures and so forth that were given to uh, uh, Reverend Falwell. And he said to me afterwards, he said, You know, I just uh, could hardly restrain myself from going down there and grabbing a couple of those long-haired freaks and banging their heads together. And I must confess, the same thought went through my mind. But that's not Christian. That's wrong. That's sin. That's contrary to the will of God. Because those dear people are not the enemy. They've been victimized by the enemy. And so whenever we're ostracized or singled out for bad treatment by those who oppose the gospel, our reaction must always to be forgiving and loving and kind. We need to watch the terms that we apply to them because they're people that God loves, people that He died for, people who have been victimized by the dragon. And we must not be violent either by in our words or in our, in our actions. When I was in the service, I heard a story of a young man who was in an airborne division stationed at... at uh, 
uh, Fort Bennington. And I came in one night from being in the field, and uh, there he was muddy and tired, and he was so exhausted he just stripped his boots off and fell down in his bunk, and he's waiting for the other men to get out of the shower. Uh, he was a, a committed, outspoken Christian and had some time before they turned the lights out, so he took a little New Testament out of his pocket, and he was lying down on his bed reading some in the Psalms when a boot came whistling through the air and landed up against his uh, wall locker. And someone had taken his muddy combat boot and thrown it across the room and splattered mud all over his uh, bay and, and all over his sheets and his New Testament, and it really made him mad. But uh, he didn't respond. So he went back to reading the New Testament. And a few minutes later, another boot whistled through the air and hit him right in the side of the head. And the mud just flew all over and and it just enraged him, and he leaped up from his bed, and he grabbed the boot, and he was going to go pound the guy on the head with it. And he took about two steps, and the Lord said, Now, wait a minute. Slow down. That's not the response. And uh, to get control of himself, he went into the shower, and he was still so mad, he took the guy's boots, and he threw them in the shower and turned the water on them. And uh, he was just going to leave them there, and the Lord kept saying, That's not the way. There's a better way. So he went back to his wall locker, and he got his shoeshine kit out, and he went back into the bathroom, and he sat down, and he cleaned the guy's boots off, polished them, buffed them up, and took them back and just set them under his bunk. Now, it would be a better story if I could tell you that the man became a Christian. I don't know what happened, but uh, I know it happened that way. And that's the sort of response that we're called upon to make to those who oppose us. As Paul puts it, the servant of God must not strive. That's a command. It's a sin to be argumentative and to throw an insult back when we're insulted. The servant of God must not strive, but be gentle with all men, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if perhaps God will grant repentance and they will be released from Satan, who has held them captive to do his will. Now, you see, that's a little peek behind the scenes. Satan has them. They're being victimized by Satan. He's the enemy, not the person who curses you. And therefore, our response ought to be the same response that our Lord gave, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We need to be patient, gentle, kind, and speak truth. And Paul says if they are to be delivered at all from Satan's grasp, it is because we speak the truth in love. Truth is not enough. And love is not enough. It takes both. Speaking the truth in love. Well, let's stand together. And we'll be dismissed. <clears throat> Father, forgive us for those times that we uh, react in anger and throw back insults because we've been insulted. Or we just withdraw and become cold and indifferent because people around us have, uh, have made it difficult for us. We, uh, we're all guilty of that sort of thing, Lord, and we ask for forgiveness. 
and ask that our, our response toward people who oppose us would be full of grace and love. Keep us from reacting in anger. Help us to speak to them in, uh, with kindness and uh, to show them the, the love that sent you to the cross on their behalf. And that's our desire. And we fail often, Father, but we thank you for your forgiveness that makes it, makes it possible for us to go back again and again and do what we know we must do. Grant to us the grace to be the kind of people that we know we should be. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.